Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. Brought to you by the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing and hosted by Paul Mann. Welcome back to the Carnegie Endowment's China in the World podcast. I'm delighted today to welcome Dr. Liz Economy to discuss her new book, The World According to China, which was just released this month in January, uh, as well as other developments in, in Chinese foreign policy and domestic politics. Never miss an opportunity to ask Liz a broader base set of questions. But before diving into the interview, let me take a couple minutes and introduce Liz for folks who don't know her, although I suspect Folks interested in China that are listening to this podcast know her quite well. Liz Economy is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Previously at CFR, she was the CV Star Senior Fellow and Director for Asia Studies for over a decade. She's currently on leave, serving as a senior advisor in the Department of Commerce in the administration of President Biden. As I mentioned, Liz's latest book, released this month, uh, is what we'll discuss today. It's called The World According to China. Uh, Liz is a prolific writer. Her previous book, uh, The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State, came out uh, just three years ago in 2019. That book was shortlisted for the Lionel Gelber Prize. In 2013, Liz published By All Means Necessary, How China's Resource Quest is Changing the World. And prior to that, uh, she published The River Runs Black, The Environmental Challenge to China's Future. Now, I know all these books because I'm often asked to make suggestions on what people should read to understand China, and I always put Liz's books on my list. In her book this month, The World According to China, Liz examines China's role in the world today, its ambitions uh, for its role in the future, and its leaders' plans to remake the world system to achieve these goals. And importantly, what I always like as a former government official is she outlines what this means for other countries and particularly the United States uh, and how concerned governments should respond. Uh, I've torn through the book already uh, and I found it very thorough and insightful. And for our listeners, I would highly recommend you pick up a copy as soon as you can. Liz, thanks for joining me today and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Thanks very much, Paul. It's great to be here with you. So before diving into the book, I'd uh, like to give our listeners you know, just a brief overview. I mentioned um, that it, the book really gives kind of comprehensive look into President Xi Jinping's strategy to redefine world order, um, establish Chinese centrality on the world stage, and as I mentioned, lays out some recommendations to effectively, for the United States and others, to effectively navigate this. Tell us a little bit, if you can, about your motivations for writing the book. How did you decide on the focus of the book? Uh, what were you hoping to achieve? And maybe touch on some of the just the top line arguments you had hoped to convey. Sure. Um, thank you. So I think in terms of the motivations for writing the, the book, there were a couple. Um, you know, it was at a time um, when in the United States, President Trump was in power and he was uh, withdrawing the United States, you know, from many international organizations, uh, multilateral institutions, and regimes uh, like the Paris Climate Accord, and uh, you know, eventually the World Health Organization, the Iran Nuclear Agreement, um, and there was this narrative that emerged uh, that China was going to step up and, and fill the vacuum. Mm -hmm. And you know, in in my mind, I thought, you know, 
is that likely to happen? And if it does happen, what does that mean for the rest of the world? So that's one thing that, that made me think about writing this book. Uh, a second thing was that, uh, you know, within sort of the China foreign policy community, analytical community, there's long been this debate uh, about uh, China's motivations and in particular Xi Jinping's motivations, uh, you know, is Xi Jinping a sort of system maintainer? Is he a system revolutionary? Is he a system reformer? Uh, and, you know, to my mind, as I looked um, at, was, at what was happening, it seemed to me that he was more of a system revolutionary than many people gave him credit for. You know, there was the argument that China has benefited from the international system, you know, over the past 40 years. So why would it want to transform it? Um, but as, again, as I looked at China, I thought, well, China has changed a lot over the past 40 years, right? It's certainly become much more economically and militarily powerful. You know, Xi Jinping is a different kind of leader. So China's changed. Why wouldn't China want the rest of the world to change uh, along with it? Uh, why wouldn't it want international institutions to reflect China's voice? So that's really the motivation. Uh, those mm. are the motivations for why mm. I, I wrote the book. Those are good set of motivations. And I remember, you know, very vividly when Trump came into office and President Xi went to Davos um, and it looked like he was sort of taking on the, the mantle of globalism and supporting free trade and other other issues. But it didn't seem to sit right with those of us that were watching and uh, tried to understand what China was trying to achieve. And your point about Xi as a, a revolutionary, I mean, I think we all uh, have a sense we all underestimated President Xi in that regard. And so these are quite good in terms of the motivations, I think. In the book, you, you, know, you challenge uh, this claim uh, that, that, the, that Beijing is, and I'll use the quote that's in your book, overwhelmingly defensive and designed only to protect itself from criticism of its political system and to realize a limited set of sovereignty claims. And you argue instead that President Xi is unsatisfied, uh, as you just uh, suggested, that uh, you know, with, with China's influence uh, in, this, in the existing international system, and that's aiming for something much more ambitious. Ultimately, uh, from your book, I take it, could amount to a fundamental redefinition of the international order if successful. Um, one, as you just suggested, that's more compatible, compatible with China's interests and in governance. So how, how would you, I mean, folks should read the book because I think obviously they'll take away a much broader understanding, but how would you describe the world according to China? What do you see as kind of the key features of President Xi or the Chinese leadership's grand strategy and, and why is it important for international observers to understand that? Yeah, so I, I think, um, you know, what I say is that, that uh, Xi Jinping, China, uh, China's leaders want to reorder the world order. And I explore that across five dimensions. Um, you know, the first is, you know, as you suggest, the sovereignty issues, you know, where China really wants to, you know, redraw the very geography of the Asia Pacific. And in some respects, it's, again, it's more ambitious than I think we typically um, uh, think about. So. It's not simply Taiwan and Hong Kong and the South China Sea, right? What we saw during COVID was, you know, China, you know, engage in a border, you know, conflict with India, the first deadly border conflict in, in 40 years, you know, a much more assertive China in the sort of territorial uh, waters and airspace with regard to Malaysia and Indonesia, you know, pushing mm -hmm. out against uh, Japan, the Diyu Senkaku Islands, and even 
you know, uh, restarting a sort of political uh, territorial dispute with uh, Bhutan. Uh, and so I think, you know, just in that one space, right, China is more ambitious than, again, the typical narrative. I think second, um, China wants to push the United States uh, out of uh, the Asia Pacific as uh, the preeminent power. Um, you know, people often talk about, well, China doesn't want to replace the United States as the sole superpower. And to some extent, I, I think people are right. I think China wants the rights associated with uh, being a superpower, but not necessarily the responsibilities. But I think in the Asia Pacific, uh, China clearly you know, wants the United States to, to go back across the Pacific and, and yeah. be an Atlantic power. Um, mm -hmm. The, the mm -hmm. third dimension that I uh, look at is China's effort to embed its security, its political and its economic interests uh, in other countries, right? to have other countries align their policies and their preferences with those of China. And you see this in, in a number of different respects through the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, through, mm -hmm. through more sort of uh, China's more coercive or sharp power uh, efforts um, to use economic inducement and coercion uh, to shape uh, other countries' um, uh, practices, you know, how they uh, pursue policies with regard to um, uh, China. Um, but I think there's clearly an effort for China to, to spread its, its influence globally. And, you know, first through hard infrastructure in the Belt and Road, then digital infrastructure, you have a health, you know, Silk Road. Um, it really is a pretty uh, significant uh, grand strategy foreign policy mission. What's emerged yeah. out of it? Um, the fourth dimension um, that I think is somewhat, somewhat more recent and in some respects more um, inchoate is, is an effort to um, insulate the Chinese economy, uh, but within the context of a more globalized economy. And I think we see this with Xi Jinping's dual circulation policy, mm -hmm. right? The idea that China can innovate, manufacture, uh, and consume all within its own uh, economy but still it will you know, import uh, selective uh, capital and know-how, um, and certainly it wants to export, but a, a much more insular China within the context of this globalized economy, um, or maybe self-sufficient is, is a better way to put it. Uh, and then finally, China's efforts uh, to transform norms um, and values in global governance institutions and, and really to um, assert its own values and policy preferences in international institutions. And I look at a number of different issues, you know, in the cyber uh, governance space and human rights, you know, in the Arctic and, and in development. Uh, and you see how China has very effectively, in some cases, used international institutions to cement its own much narrower interests, right? So many Chinese officials uh, who are supposed to be representatives of the international bodies in which they're serving actually end up uh, dedicating themselves to advancing China's interests within those institutions. Mm -hmm. um, so again, I think it's a pretty transformative um, endeavor uh, that Xi Jinping has undertaken. And you know, if he is successful, will leave uh, the international system uh, pretty dramatically transformed. Now, I take from your book, um, they've had some successes, but they've also faced some resistance. And, and in the book, you know, you write that China's combination of soft, sharp, and hard power has not translated into widespread trust for China globally. Um, so, you know, first, what are, what are the different dimensions of China's power? What are, what are some of the key ways you've described some of them in terms of their 
you know, involvement in international institutions and through their economic coercions. Um, are there others, uh, military power, for example, that they use to advance their interest? And why haven't these efforts been fully successfully at achieving these desired outcomes? And have you seen uh, any signs, and this is a loaded question, but have you seen any signs of China's ability to recognize these dynamics that they're getting this kind of pushback um, from parts of the international community and that they're course correcting their response based on this international pushback? Sure, that's a big question, but let me try to tackle it. Um, <laughs> so I think uh, you're right. There are different kinds of power. So what we call soft power, there's sort of sharp power, there's military power, you know, economic, uh, you know, power um, that China um, has through its trade and investment. But I think what surprised me, frankly, maybe the greatest surprise I had when I was doing the research and, and writing the book was the extent to which um, as international observers, we tend to assume that when China launches an initiative, that it's going to be successful. And mm -hmm. so um, when you take something like Confucius Institutes, which you know, are an example of China's soft power, right? These are institutes that are designed to promote Chinese language training and cultural exchange. And you know, China funds them oftentimes in universities, sometimes they're standalone institutes. Um, you know, but but China did uh, so. You know, in, initially they were very popular; they proliferated, you know, very widely. Um, but but over time, some of the more coercive elements of Confucius Institutes—the fact that uh, the contracts had to remain secret, that China chose the teachers and the curriculum—which meant right. you knew the curriculum would be limited, right? It would be limited in terms of the topics that could be engaged—started um, uh, to rankle. Right. And, and I think officials in some countries became concerned, university professors uh, at some universities became concerned. And all of a sudden you had this pushback against these Confucius Institutes. And so when I looked to, to just see, well, how many Confucius Institutes are there? How successful have they been? I discovered that beginning in 2018, the number of Confucius Institutes globally actually began to decline as countries began to close them. Uh, and moreover, you know, China had plans to have a thousand Confucius Institutes by 2020, and instead it had about 542. And so that, as I began to look across the board, you think about something like the Belt and Road Initiative, again, you know, very well received uh, initially. Um, but as time has gone on, you know, you find protests around Belt and Road projects in virtually every host country. And why? Because China pursued the Belt and Road just at, abroad, just the way that it developed at home, which is to say, you know, a lot of debt supported uh, infrastructure uh, development with a lot of externalities like environmental degradation and pollution, poor labor practices, lack of transparency in the, in the governance. And so these kinds of um, elements of, of, in many respects of China's export of its own model, I think really have served to constrain uh, China's ability to exert, you know, its soft power. Sometimes, you know, the really China's own goals, you know, when you look at the China's efforts around in the initial stages of COVID, when it was really the, clearly the most important source of personal protective equipment in the world, right? And, you know, initially, China was out there, you know, talking about providing PPE. And sure, some of it was defective. Sure, it was selling it. And it wasn't necessarily just donating it. But yeah. then you had this very unattractive diplomacy emerge where, mm -hmm. you know, foreign affairs officials were talking about 
you know, if you don't, right, put Huawei in your 5G network, we're mm. not going to give you uh, PPE. Mm. If you don't thank us enough, Public we're not going to give you appreciation. So yeah. I think all of, of these, um, these uh, the ways in which China pursues its diplomacy um, undercut like what could be incredibly uh, effective uh, yeah. mechanisms for spreading Chinese influence. Let me make one last point, I think, on the military power. You know, military power is, is a different kind of power um, because, you know, it, you don't want to have to use it, right? And, um, and the way that China uses it, you know, for the most part has been, uh, you know, in its own backyard uh, and uh, to try to coerce other countries into accepting uh, its sovereignty claims right around the South, South China Sea. Um, but uh, I think when it comes to countries' national security, um, you know, they're, they're reluctant, right, just to cede, uh, literally to cede territory uh, to China. And so I think, um, you know, it, it hasn't been effective, for example, you know, China's uptick in uh, military activity around Taiwan in, in changing yeah. Taiwan's politics. Mm -hmm. um, so I think military power is sort of in its special case of, of its own, uh, but certainly there's a much greater awareness of, of how China's military power has grown. And you know, what's your sense in general in, in terms of whether Chinese leaders you know, recognize these dynamics and, and are course correcting? And, and on that, you know, you've mentioned the Belt and Road a couple of times in terms of course correction. Do you feel, I know you've mentioned some of the challenges, protests in host countries and some of the problems they've had in terms of transparency and environmental degradation. Um, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, some reports suggested that China's overseas lending took a hit as China grappled with economic headwinds at home. Uh, and Chinese, you know, workers abroad were, you know, at home were unable to go overseas because of travel restrictions. So do you, what do you what's your sense on number one, whether or not China it understands and recognizes the dynamics you've described across the range of issues. Um, and are they course correcting and in particular on the Belt and Road? Um, so I think um, there's a distinction between sometimes the government officials and you know, scholars and analysts in China's foreign policy community. It's clear to me that the sort of analytical community in China recognizes virtually all the challenges uh, that China's policies have created, um, and uh, in many respects, you know, have been advising, for example, uh, that China stop its, you know, wolf warrior diplomacy, right? That a very aggressive and, uh, and bullying diplomacy. They can see as well as anyone the very low uh, ratings, public opinion polls globally now, mm -hmm. in terms of trust in Xi Jinping or desire for Chinese leadership in the region, um, and so they understand the cause and effect. Um, I think at, at the senior level, um, it's not clear to me how much of the views of the analytical community are making um, their way uh, to the top leadership. Uh, I think there seems to be a very limited number of officials around Xi Jinping who are advising him closely. Uh, and you know, I haven't talked to many uh, Chinese um, uh, scholars, and I know you have as well. I think there's also, increasing concern that they don't want to present views um, uh, to Xi Jinping that differ dramatically from what's already going on um, right. because of concern for their career. So I think there's a problem in terms of information yeah. transmission. Course correction on the Belt and Road, 
clearly um, the Belt and Road, the second Belt and Road Forum was an acknowledgement um, mm. that things weren't moving uh, entirely in the right direction. We've seen yeah. China now pledge not to have coal-fired power plants, um, to export coal-fired power plants. That's a very big um, change uh, right. that came across, mm -hmm. that came about more because of climate change than the Belt and Road itself. Um, right. I don't think there's been as much course correction in the Belt and Road um, as many countries would have liked to have seen uh, in terms yeah. of the environmental impacts and social impacts. Um, uh, but that doesn't surprise me because frankly yeah. speaking, the kind of practices that we've seen in the Belt and Road have been around, you know, since 1999 when China first started its go out strategy. And there are plenty right. of laws and regulations on the books that should moderate those kinds of practices, uh, but have failed to date. So not clear to me why things would change. To the last point about whether um, there's a slowdown in Belt and Road activity, um, my sense is, you know, first that Belt and Road investment peaked in 2016. So even before COVID, um, there the sort of there was a, a step back uh, from, I think, sort of Chinese ambition, in part because there was a lot of uh, concern within the country about the Belt and Road. You know, you had people writing, why are we, quote, giving, you know, all this money to other countries when we have needs at home? You know, some yeah. uh, companies didn't like the Belt and Road because they weren't actually making money off of the project. So there was some discontent swirling within China uh, as well, even uh, pre-COVID. I would say, I think what's going to happen moving forward is that the government will be more strategic about the Belt and Road. I think the Digital Silk Road will move ahead very aggressively. So the fiber optic cables and e-commerce and satellite systems and export of surveillance equipment, I think that's going to be uh, a priority. And I think China's uh, acquisition of, of significant stakes in ports will also be um, an area that they pursue uh, fairly aggressively. I think we may see a diminution in, in sort of the bridges mm -hmm. and railroads and highways. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, make it much more strategic, tied to China's strategic goals. You know, you you mentioned Liz at the outset. One of your one of the reasons to write the book was to explore Xi Jinping's motivations. Um, and one of the aspects I actually enjoyed most about the book is you do devote a lot of attention to Xi Jinping himself um, in explaining China's goal, you know, global vision and foreign policy. Um, a number, you know, international observers. Um, similar to you in your last book, The Third Revolution, have described Xi as a transformational leader who has set China on a new path. But, you know, there's an open debate about, you know, how important the leader is or whether it has to do more with structural or ideological factors in terms of some of the changes that we see from China. What role do you see in terms of Chinese leaders in general, but Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping in particular, um, in setting China on this new course? And, um, you know, do you, how much do you account to President Xi himself versus, you know, these structural ideological factors, which, which a number of other, other number of analysts will focus on? Yeah. So look, I think um, structure um, provides opportunity, right? And, um, you know, there's no doubt that things like the global financial crisis or, um, you know, even COVID um, opens doors in different ways um, to, to Chinese leaders to make different kinds of decisions. You know, looking at the United States, how do they understand uh, their power relative, for example, to, to that of the United States?
But to my mind, um, you know, looking at Xi Jinping, looking at the very um, sharp break uh, that has taken place in the post Xi period across, you know, not only in foreign policy, but also on the domestic side, it's hard not to attribute, right, this dramatic change, this set of dramatic changes uh, to Xi Jinping. I mean, he walked, you know, on the stage in 2012, you know, talked about the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, and then very quickly uh, began to not only articulate a vision, but to deliver on it, right? So many policies had been floating around in the past. So things like the Belt and Road Initiative in one form or another had been around. It wasn't something that Xi Jinping conceived of, but Xi Jinping is the one who picked up that policy and pursued it, right? So, you know, there. I think there's the decisions that certain leaders make are determinative. Um, the, there's a range of options that any leader might um, adopt, and it's, but it's the leader that makes the ultimate decision. In the case of Xi Jinping, you know, we've seen how he's consolidated power, right? You have to understand the trends in domestic politics as well to understand uh, the uh, power, right, that Xi Jinping now possesses to lead the country on the international stage. That's not to say that there can't be pushback. That's not to say that he can't be and his ambitions can't be moderated. But, mm. you know, we have a Chinese leader who's published, you know, three or four books of his speeches. Right? How many books of speeches did Hu Jintao publish? Do we even know? You know, so so or Jiang Zemin. I think um, I, I personally um, I don't understand how um, you can ignore uh, yeah. the impact of a leader like Xi Jinping, who so yeah. clearly articulates what it is that he wants to do and then marches forward to do it. And you, frankly, Paul, better than anybody can remember what China was like in 2010 and 2011 and how very different it feels in the post-Xi era. Uh, so I, for me, yeah. I don't deny the, the role of ideology and of structural factors, but in my mind, you know, leaders have a range of choices, just like they do in the United States. And to ignore the role of the individual leader, I think, is to miss 80 percent, 90 percent even uh, of yeah. what's taking place in China today. Well, I, I, I'm not surprised. I tend to agree with with your answer. And I think, you know, President Xi's ambition and his confidence, um, you know, his ability to take on risk, I think, was something that was uh, underappreciated quite a bit from the onset. And I, I think has a huge impact. And like you said, he has laid out, you can agree with it or not, but he has laid out a very clear vision. Um, and that's very powerful. I, I uh, would be remiss if I uh, didn't talk to you, Liz, about the issue of Taiwan. And you mentioned in your book um, that the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation is tied to China's core sovereignty interests, including Taiwan. There are others, um, but today there's a huge amount of international interest in this issue of Taiwan as the mainland continues to ramp up its incursions into Taiwan's air, de air defense identification zone, modernizes its military, uh, and the US is showing greater support to Taiwan. Uh, so this, you describe unfinished business in China's eyes when you talk about Taiwan in the book. And I'm sure you get asked a lot about the risks of uh, Chinese invasion. We just talked about President Xi being quite 
ambitious and aggressive and risk averse. Um, but you know, where, how do you see this issue? Is this something that's likely in the future? And if so, when? What developments would trigger the mainland to pursue forceful reunifications? How do you view this issue? Yeah. Um, so this is a, a topic that uh, engenders significant debate uh, in the United States among the China watching community. Um, many observers think that Xi Jinping is not really any different uh, from uh, leaders that have come before him in terms of uh, how he thinks about Taiwan, how he approaches it. Uh, I, I tend to be a little bit more concerned. I think uh, his not his rhetoric is um, is is significant. Um, as you point out, uh, he has tied uh, reunification reunification with Taiwan to the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. He has said it needs to happen sooner rather than than later. He's actually you know, he's made it one of the fourteen must do items on his list. Um, so it's hard for me to see that Xi Jinping would. Uh, finish his, his you know, tenure, his leadership um, with Taiwan uh, still as, you know, basically an independent nation, right? an, in, an independent uh, acting entity. So I am concerned. And, and what do I think would precipitate uh, uh, Chinese sort of military uh, action against Taiwan? Um, certainly, if, if Taiwan were to declare independence, I, I don't see that, that happening. Um, mm -hmm. But I think there is a danger um, as the United States and other countries uh, lift up Taiwan politically. Uh, and we see this you know, happening, uh, as you suggest, increasingly, not just the United States, but many more countries now, European countries, have become much more uh, engaged in Taiwan. You know, a lot of European countries have Indo-Pacific strategies. It's not only now about making money with China, uh, but they're really becoming more engaged in the security uh, uh, elements of, of the Asia Pacific. Japan and Australia have stepped up and said that they believe their security is tied uh, to that of Taiwan. These are pretty fundamental shifts in the way that um, major uh, uh, countries are looking at Taiwan and engaging with yeah. Taiwan. Um, and we've even seen you know, the smaller former, you know, Eastern Bloc countries like Lithuania and the Czech Republic and Slovakia, you know, amping up their diplomatic relations with Taiwan at significant economic, you know, risk in terms of their relations uh, with the mainland. Um, so it, this can all be very um, exciting in some respects for those of us who care about democracy and who um, respect and admire what Taiwan has accomplished. But I think that it, it comes with a risk, um, especially with Xi Jinping. And we saw with Hong Kong um, how quickly and, um, and determinedly he uh, quashed all democracy in Hong Kong. Now, granted, Hong Kong is in a different space than Taiwan, but I think you know, we lived in a little bit of a dream thinking that um, Xi Jinping would never risk Hong Kong, would never risk doing what China did because of the economic implications. Mm. Um, and I think there was this, you know, false sense of security. And I'm just concerned that um, that the West may be developing a false sense of security around Taiwan as well. Um, mm. So as we are building up Taiwan diplomatically, as we seek to integrate it um, into regional organizations and, and activities, all of which I believe um, are good things, I think we have to match that with um, you know, a strategic plan for Taiwan, a security plan for Taiwan. 
And I'm not sure that our efforts to bolster Taiwan's security, that or Taiwan's own efforts, I should say, to bolster its security uh, have kept up with its, its foreign policy, its diplomatic policy. And so, you know, I have to say I'm worried that Beijing could use almost anything once it believes it has the military capabilities to, mm-hmm. to, to launch successful um, uh, action against Taiwan. Um, I'm concerned that it could you know, fabricate or could use almost anything as an excuse uh, to yeah. go in. Uh, because yeah. as you mentioned, I believe that Xi Jinping's tolerance for risk is much greater than previous Chinese leaders. Yeah. Yeah. For many years, of course, Liz, as you know, they, they had to kick the Taiwan question down the road because they didn't have military capabilities. And I think now they're coming to a period where they have some formidable capabilities and that will change the dynamic, obviously. So agree with you. Uh, important to pay attention to this issue. Um, why don't I'd like to sort of end things with, you know, you mentioned when she finishes his tenure. Of course, most people think that maybe he won't finish his tenure as long as he's alive. And as we look out to the next political event uh, on the horizon that's big, it's the 20th Party Congress in the fall of 2022, where most you know observers expect that she will secure his third term as president, general secretary, chairman of the military commission. The last party Congress, uh, the 19th Party Congress in 2017, ushered in this new era, uh, which introduced a more ambitious role for China's domestic and foreign policy. How do you look at this 2022 20th Party Congress? What are your expectations? What political themes could emerge? How do you think about President Xi after he secures his third term? Do we expect somebody who's even more ambitious? And you know, what does this mean for the rest of the world and in particular the United States? So I, I think the 20th Party Congress um, uh, will have sort of two dimensions to it. One, it's, it's going to usher in you know, a next generation of leaders. And um, I believe almost half of the Politburo, the top 25 leaders um, is um, up to be replaced um, because of age limits. Um, so I think that's going to be one element. So we're going to see, you know, who's who is, you know, open to taking the mantle moving forward, right? What does this next generation look like? Um, what are their proclivities? And I think that's going to be, you know, one thing that's going to be very interesting coming out of Party Congress. I, I also think that um, un- unless something changes over the course of this year, and it's possible that it that it may. Um, uh, I think you know there are some pretty strong domestic and international headwinds that could force some moderation in, in policy. We shouldn't completely exclude uh, the potential mm-hmm. that some of China's leaders, other leaders outside of Xi Jinping, may mm-hmm. say, "Listen, um, things are kind of moving in the wrong direction here. Um, maybe we need to take a little bit of a step back." And there have been some intimations, for example, that that's already happened on Xi's big vision of common prosperity. Um, But I think, you know, if that doesn't happen, I think the 20th Party Congress is likely to be a celebration of of Xi Jinping, of what uh, has been accomplished over the past 10 years, because, you know, a very strong narrative uh, could certainly, um, you know, emerge out of this in terms of, you know, both China's growth as an economic power, as we just talked about, it's, you know, military uh, power, Um, and its influence on the global stage. And so, you know, I think to my mind, what we're likely to get is more of the same, 
right? More ambition, um, mm. more hunkering down on the domestic front. Um, uh, so I don't, I don't see a major shift in, in policy um, unless, in, you know, over the next year, we see a significant slowdown in the Chinese economy and other leaders sort of bring to bear uh, this sense that all of Xi Jinping's ambition and assertiveness uh, has, in fact, had the kind of, you know, negative uh, feedback um, that we discussed earlier, um, that those kinds of issues come to the fore uh, and somehow produce some moderation in policy. But I put the chances of that happening at about, you know, 10%. So more of the same, uh, maybe maybe even amped up a bit. More, more of a reason for people to buy your book and understand uh, the dynamics at play. Liz, thank you very much for your time. It's been a terrific discussion. Um, good luck with uh, the rest of your tenure in terms of advising the Secretary of Commerce. And we hope to have you back on the podcast sometime soon. Thanks so much, Paul.